The following talk is given by Tara Brock, meditation teacher, psychologist, and author. Namaste and welcome. In this human realm, perhaps the most uh, core expression of, of spiritual awakeness is love. And there's an expression, I, or a, a predicament, a description of a predicament I really like, which is called the big squeeze, which is day by day, there's this deep capacity we have uh, to love and to be wise and accepting. And yet we can watch our, our moments of the day and see how many times we're pulled around by all sorts of reactivity and small-mindedness and obsessiveness and judgment. And so we're caught in this squeeze, and you might think of it, you know, in terms of the brain, the squeeze is between our older systems, the limbic systems of fight, flight, freeze, and then our more fully activated frontal cortex. It's like they're, you know, there's kind of who's going to win out in a way. Um, or you might think of it this, that just that's developmentally, that um, there's a lot of strong conditioning, egoic conditioning, and we have a capacity to perceive and live from a greater sense of wholeness and integration and love. As evolving creatures, it takes intention, an intentional engagement in our own process to awaken the heart. It takes intention to awaken this capacity to really accept unconditionally what's going on and to really love without holding back, love and express our love, let people know. It takes intention. It takes intention to let it in some, to put down and be less defended in our heart. So what I'd like to explore this week and next week is this path of unconditional loving and what the key elements are that help us to evolve our own capacity. And um, as you might imagine, uh, the starting place in any exploration of unconditional love is how we're regarding the life right here. That's the starting place. So I'll read to you one of my favorite verses from Srinur Sargadatta, Indian teacher. He says, all you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-condemnation and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them, you are beyond. All I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. It's powerful words. So let me unpack a little bit. Like what is it when we're saying make love of yourself? Who's this self we're, we're loving? 
And just to perhaps distinguish and say, when we're loving ourselves, we're not loving the self that's in the story, the character, the narrative self. We're loving the life that's right here. We're loving and offering care to this different patterning of emotions and feelings and sensations. We're loving the life that's emerging moment to moment. Okay? And then some ask, well, perfect? Isn't that like another, okay, now do this perfect? (laughs) I'm falling short on loving myself, you know? And then it's like problems. So the spirit of this uh, plea from Sridhar Sargadatta is one of let it be your deepest intention. Let it be right at the center of your path to love the life that's right here. Because the most important truths are the ones that we always forget. And one of them is you can't be in love with life if you've excluded this portion of life that we call self. Does that resonate for you? Is that, are we together on that part? Okay. Now, just the word love, we could spend a lot of time on. For me, the very ground of love is an unconditional acceptance right here and now, that openness that totally is attending to and accepting what's right here. And it's out of that openness and that acceptance that contact with what's right here, that the tenderness and sensitivity and responsiveness that we call love arises. So sometimes we might say, well, can you feel love for yourself this moment? And we might not feel the full-blown warmth, but there can be the beginnings of an allowing, of an accepting of what's here, and that's the beginnings of loving. We don't have to jump to the full-blown expression. So make love of yourself perfect. What would happen if that even by a a matter of a few degrees became more in your consciousness, that, that commitment to truly feeling a sense of tenderness and acceptance and a care towards what's here? How would your life change? You know, it's, it's worth considering. It ripples out. To offer a metaphor that I find useful, the deep understanding is that this loving is an intrinsic capacity. It's like an interior sun in our being, this light and warmth that's always there. But as we know, it's not always something we access or feel because it's covered over by clouds that obscure it. And so a lot of the path is to sense the clouds of beliefs and emotions that we get identified with. We get lost in those clouds, so we forget that openness and light and warmth that really is our deepest nature. We forget who we are. And the Buddha described that as really the core of our suffering, forgetting who we are. So maybe a reflection just to bring this right into the moment for you just to invite you to close your eyes and take a moment to check in. And take some moments of pausing to connect with your senses, to be here. 
Know that you're here, the sounds that are right here, listening. Feeling the aliveness in your body. And feeling your heart, whatever mood is here. And let your intention be right now to hold your own being with an unconditional and accepting presence. This grounds of making love of ourselves perfect. An unconditional accepting presence. And the background inquiry as you have this intention is to notice if there's anything between me and accepting myself. Accepting the life that's right here. Notice how you're relating to your own experience. Is there a quality of acceptance, allowing, gentleness? Or is there something getting in the way, something that's blocking the sun? You might widen this inquiry and just sense your life today, yesterday, last weeks, and how you've been relating to yourself. Just asking again, is there anything between me and accepting myself? Regarding myself with presence, gentleness, love. And for now, you can take a few breaths and open your eyes as you're ready. And then just know that this can be a a very useful inquiry just to ask, is there anything between me and loving myself in this moment? And what we notice is sometimes there may be a real sense of freedom and regarding this inner life and the life everywhere with a real open-heartedness. But at other times, for most of us, because we're uh, creatures of the culture and our conditioning and so on, which I'm going to talk about a little more, 
we find there are clouds. There is something between us and loving fully, feeling really at home. And when I ask this question, I work with people in um, you know, residential workshops and so on. Um, when I say, oh, so what are the clouds? What do we get caught on? And for some, it's, it's, you know, well, actually, when I asked that question, I just couldn't even get in touch with myself. I don't even know what I was loving. So there's kind of a numbness or disconnect. And then for others, well, when I really try to be present, I just feel a lot of fear. And, um, or I feel a lot of anger or a story about something going on in my life takes me away. So it's not really loving, accepting presence here. I'm kind of reactive. And then... For many, it's when they really check into their lives and say, well, what's between me and really accepting and opening to and loving this being here, there's actually a very strong uh, sense of self-aversion or a a stream of judgment or criticism that uh, prevents a sense of really being able to embrace this life. So I want to address that tonight because I call this the trance of separation, that in some deep way, we, uh, if we look at our day, we can sense that we've kind of left ourselves. We're often thoughts or reactivity, and that often in the trance of separation, the reactivity, the, the clouds that we're lost in are storm clouds. They're in some way we're at war with ourselves. It's an undercurrent. We're not always aware of it, but we're often at odds with ourselves. And what I'd like to do is pause, and because I, this is, to me, a very universal and core conditioning, to leave our bodies, to kind of leave the moment, and to be turned against ourselves. And I want to ask for you here, how many of you have noticed that in your life, that you spend a lot of time at war with yourself in some way? Don't be shy, because it's helpful to... Okay, so for those listening, that, that's, that looked like about 90% of the hands here. And I can, I'll join in with my hand, but you get to hear my stories all the time. Um, this is Wendell Berry. You'll be walking some night. It will be clear to you suddenly that you were about to escape and that you're guilty. You misread the complex instructions. You are not a member. You lost your card or never had one. When we incarnate, we, along with every other creature in the universe, have some sense of separation. There's a sense of what's inside and a sense of out there. And with that separation, there is inevitably a core and primal sense of fear. There's some sense that mortal, this is fragile, this is vulnerable material here, it's easily at risk, there's a lot of danger, we're going to die. So that, that is a, a basic core scenario. And so there's inevitably unpleasantness. And what happens to us is that there's aversion to the unpleasantness, and then we add what I often refer to from the Buddhist teachings, because it's so, such a good descriptor, is the second arrow. So the first arrow is that core fear and the unpleasantness of it. And the second arrow is, this means I'm bad. Feeling bad means I'm bad. We don't often see how that identification 
that step of not feeling good and then I'm not good, we don't always notice that that's taken place. But because it's always happening, it's easy to coagulate into some ongoing sense of not okay, I'm not okay. So it's very much reinforced in our culture. Our cultures are our petri dish. And as we know, it's, it's a competitive one. And we can't avoid the influence of the messages from our culture about what's desirable and good and what's bad. And we can't avoid measuring ourselves. And there's no way that we meet the standard on everything. So we're, it's a kind of a setup. You know, there's all these very, it's a narrow band of standards on intelligence. And I often talk about this because I'm so appalled in our educational systems how still there's just this emphasis on a certain kind of left brain and analytic intelligence that um, is, is applauded. And so many kids that have different kinds of intelligences end up feeling like they're not smart. That feels like a real shame, a real tragedy. And then, of course, there's all these standards on how we should look and how many of us, whether it's body or face or just general way we dress or whatever, feel in some way not enough. And then there's standards about success. And then if we're a minority, there's so much of a diminishing value of people that are different from the mainstream, whether it's race, our sexual orientation, our gender orientation, or religion. There's so many ways the culture can make us not okay. Then we have all the standards of proper behavior. First of all, proper emotions. We're not supposed to feel jealous or angry. And there's a whole long list I could give. So every time those challenging emotions come up, some part of us says, okay, anger's here, I'm bad. And then all the ways we're supposed to conduct ourselves, proper behavior. So we're always monitoring. We're such social creatures, we're on a roller coaster based on how others are responding to us. One story for you. This is a woman who's a top executive in New York City, finance, usually actually goes to work by limo, but there was uh, one day that the weather was so bad that she was forced to take a bus, and so she figures she'll catch up on the news or whatever. Well, she gets on the bus, and she has an embarrassing situation. She has a lot of gas, she, and she doesn't know what to do about it because it's a bit of a ride. And so she, she's like, it's, it would be really embarrassing for her to... to release it, to fart, like, oh, God, I can't do that. But she is listening to the music, and she realizes that at certain points of the music, it's really loud, and she decides to fart to the beat of the music. Okay? Finally, she gets to her stop, and when she's leaving the bus, everybody's looking at her, and it's, <laughs> it's only after stepping out that she realizes she had her headphones on. So it's a terrible example, but I think you get the idea that we have these standards and how many of us in our hearts of hearts know that we're not in some way fitting the standard by the way we're behaving. So there's the culture that instills a sense of not meeting the standard, not okay. And then, um, as most of you know, our early years with caregivers, even before we have a separate sense of self, 
Um, there's a experience of who we are based on how we're treated and the messages we're getting. So our parents, with their own fears and preoccupations, were unable, most of them, to offer that unconditional acceptance, that seeing, true seeing of who we are. And so what happened was that we emerge with a sense of, to be okay, I have to be like this, this, and this, and I'm not. So instead of feeling at home in ourselves, we have to kind of construct ourselves to get the approval and love that matters so much. I'm thinking of one woman, I wrote this up in uh, True Refuge, whose uh, mother was very much of a narcissist, very preoccupied with herself. And she remembers when she was four, her mother saying, you know, I just ran the bath, go take your bath. She goes into the bathroom and, and gets into the bathtub and there's two to three inches of, of lukewarm water. And she remembered at that age having the thought that this is all I'm going to ever get. This is, and this is what I deserve in some ways, what I deserve. And through her life, she had a really hard time, has had, she's been working on it, asking for or thinking she deserves anything from others. Um, some sense of being needy or a pest or not important enough. Very deep, the mark of, of our early relationships. So we're talking about the second era, that feelings and emotions come up and very quickly we own them. And it goes from feeling bad to I'm bad. The core beliefs, and I want to take some moments with this, the power of our core beliefs are uh, very deeply grooved and very persistent. I'd say that they're our most persistent false refuge, and I call them a false refuge because we might have a core belief of feeling insufficient or bad, and even though that's really painful, we'd rather have that than not have it because it orients us. And it gives us a sense of control because then we at least know how we can defend and protect and try to make up for things. So even though bad is, is it feels dangerous to feel bad, at least knowing it means we can uh, have some sense of managing our circumstance. And this is the predicament, which is these core beliefs keep on reinforcing themselves because as so many of you know, if you believe that you're insufficient, then your emotions and behaviors are going to create situations that are then going to feed what you're believing. So we get caught in these, these cycles of being even more deeply identified with a sense of something's wrong with me, I'm bad. I'm, and, and when we're feeling deficient, we have less access to our resourcefulness. The limbic brain is taken over, we have less access. Another story I noted, say, Psychiatrist was at a guest at a dinner party, and his hostess kind of broached the subject that, that he was most at ease with. She asked him, would you mind telling me, how do you detect mental deficiency in somebody who appears normal? And he said, well, nothing's easier. You, really, you just ask a simple question, which anyone should be able to track with no trouble. And if that person hesitates, that kind of puts you on the track. Well, what sort of question, she asked. Well, you might ask him, Captain Cook made three trips around the world and died during one of them. Which one? 
The hostess thought for a moment, and then with a nervous laugh, she said, you wouldn't happen to have another example, would you? I must confess, I don't know much about history. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I'm going to tell you a personal story, which is, um, I was seven or eight years old, and I was at a restaurant, and my parents and the waiter was kind of chatting me up, and he said to me, you look like a smart young lady, Um, and that's where the hook came in, because then he said, I'm going to ask you a question. And so, okay, so I was stealing myself because I I wanted to be that smart young lady, you know. He said, what color was George Washington's white horse? (laughs) Well, I I really thought about it. I really, really thought about it hard. I was going through my memory trying to see if there was any pictures I saw at school and all that. And finally, I made my best guess, which was black. (laughs) (laughs) It's really strange what memories come back to you, but that was a very distinct memory in my mind, you know. When we are caught in our struggles around feeling good about ourselves or not, we shut down, really, access to our creativity, our intelligence, and to love. So, there's probably not one of us listening that doesn't know the suffering of when we're feeling uh, not okay, when we truly feel deep down something's really wrong with us. Um, Most of us know the cycle, too, that it creates. We have some area of our life where we know that we've been in a cycle. I was thinking one, one, a woman I've worked with on and off over the years, you know, anticipates that in any group she'll get in she'll be uh, rejected. She's going to end up not feeling like she belongs. She's going to feel like an outsider. And um, this is at work, at school, trainings. And she's very, because of that, very quick to withdraw and to take offense and to cover over. Or else she becomes the real vulnerable one, the patient of the group. And um, each round, it becomes more and more clear that she's got this belief that she's moved, that's absolutely creating her life. It's so many, I've said many times, I think this is Gandhi and, and several others have actually described this link that our, our beliefs create our feelings, that create our thoughts, create our behaviors, create our character, create our destiny. Okay. This is Andre Nguyen, Catholic mystic, teacher, writer. He says, over the years I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. He says, as soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves it once again. I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. I'm just going to read the last lines again. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Let's look together now at 
the movement from that stuck place where, where I identified in the cloud of, you know, I'm bad, I'm failing, something's wrong, and how we move and wake up back to sensing that, that sun, that light and warmth, which really is always here, but so often inaccessible or feels that way. And the movement to, toward making love of ourselves perfect, towards being that beloved, is that we recognize and release the second arrow, that that sense of, you know, that criticism, that judgment, that voice that's saying something's wrong with me, that we recognize that and wake up out of that And here's the main thing, that we come right into an embodied experience of the moment. It takes both of those things, recognizing the second arrow, okay, I'm down on myself again, opening up beyond that, sensing there's more to this world than that, and coming fully into embodied presence. What sustains the trance is not seeing that we're caught up in that cloud of personal badness and being dissociated from our body. As long as we're dissociated, we can't heal. So let me give you, first of all, a simple example of that shifting from being lost inside that cloud of not okayness back to something more open. With, with just an example from this morning, for me, um, it was a drizzly morning, and I, I go out walking usually around 6, 6.30, and, uh, and I, I, mean, I wake up, and the first thing I do is go for a very long walk, and I meditate usually outside if it's not too rainy. And this morning I, I started moving, and I, I have a hill that I have to go up right at the beginning, and I just, my mind went into total complaining, grumpiness, uh, a lot of physical discomfort, my hip, my shoulder, I felt a little bit of queasy, it kept going, going, kept lasting, and then I started having thoughts about, I have a, I'm in a demanding stretch of time, so feeling anxious about getting things done, so I was aversive to how my body was feeling, and I'm feeling anxiety, and not liking the anxiety, and then... I even stopped walking because I realized, oh, I'm not liking myself right now. Because it wasn't only that I was feeling physical discomfort and anxiety, I wasn't liking the self that was feeling so aversive. Now that added piece is the hook that, we, that can create our mood and stuckness and repeating of patterns for decades. So I paused, that was, that was the moment of pausing, and I just started, I just recognized, okay, this is a judgment about self, and I started coming back into my body. I said, okay, it's okay to feel anxious. It's like this weather system, it's okay to feel it. And it's okay to feel the sensations in my body, and it's okay to feel aversion. In other words, it's okay to feel what I'm feeling. And in the moments of recognizing that second arrow, and then coming back and just making it okay what was going on, that's when there was a sense of a more expanding open. That's when I wasn't any longer inside that small grumpy cloud of not okayness. I was back into a quality of presence that I still didn't feel comfortable, 
but there was no hook that there was something wrong with me. In the moment that you become mindful and aware of the second arrow, you're no longer hooked by it. There still is going to be some experience of it, but if you're really aware of it and you come into a full embodied presence, it's no longer such a hook because you, your awareness, is larger than that cloud. Keep going. The bottom line core teaching is that whatever is not an awareness controls us. So if you're assuming that something's wrong with you and that's in the background and you're not aware of it, it will keep your whole system contracted. So how do we loosen that second arrow? For me this morning it wasn't really hard because I've been working with the second arrow since I was 20 and it's very familiar and I've, this is what I've spent lots and lots of moments going, oh, this again, okay? But there are times that that second arrow has a really deep hook. And for many of us, the core beliefs, really, it doesn't feel like a belief. It feels like truth. It's our body saying, something is wrong with me. So I want to spend the last part of this exploration on how do we begin to loosen that hook? Because I feel like that's the key element for so many of us for coming into a really true sense of of freedom. And there's two major strategies I want to explore or mention on how we loosen it. So if you are caught in the sense of something's fundamentally wrong with me, I do not have the capacity to be intimate with others. If people really got to know me, they wouldn't like me. If we have some fundamental sense of no matter what happens, I'm going to fail, there's some different ways we can start saying, okay, that's the belief. How do I wake up from believing it so much? And one way is, I think of it as kind of going for the big picture. And by that I mean, we start realizing that that belief and experience of ourself is conditioned not only necessarily from our childhood, but even from past generations. This is important because if you can get that what you're experiencing was set in motion generations back, you really start getting it's not your fault, you know? And that's a really big deal. Now, here, this is, uh, we'll go to science right now. This is from December 1st, 2013 from the BBC News. There was an article about a, a study from uh, Nature Neuroscience. And it showed how mice trained to avoid a smell passed their aversion on to their grandchildren. And that might not sound like a big deal, but what it's saying is that behavior can be affected by events in previous generations that are passed on through genetic memory. So the trauma somebody experiences in a war are from abuse, are from an accident. Some of the emotions and experiences around that can be passed on and passed on. So we, there's some deep sense of I'm endangered. It's not our fault that we have such a sense of chronic endangerment. There's been generations of genetic memory passing it on. I have worked with many people that the, the shift point in their healing process is when 
they looked at all the conditions that gave rise to the behaviors that they hated about themselves. They realized, oh, well, when I was in the womb, my mother was drinking alcohol, or my mother was experiencing the rage of my father, or when I was, when I was after I was born, my parents split, and there was the kind of uh, depression that I, there was no, nothing at all coming my way. So, of course, I'm grabbing. You know, in other words, when we start seeing how everything we dislike has a cause, really has a cause. I, I often call this, you know, I refer to that metaphor with the dog with the leg in a trap, that in some way our legs in a trap were just acting exactly how any human being with a nervous system would act due to certain causes and conditions. It's in those moments something in us gets, and it's not just intellectual, wow, it's really not my fault. And I've seen that that realization does not make us irresponsible. It does the opposite. It's like in that moment of realizing it's something loose and so we actually can respond to our circumstances from a lot more intelligence and compassion. There was uh, one man who's come to, who I've known for, for years, different conferences and so on, an author, somewhat well-known, who we, we got to know each other and shared some, and he's very, very ambitious, and some of the things he shared is some, that he feels most vulnerable about is how competitive he is with other authors and uh, people in his field, and how much he really wants to be the star, and how much in, in searching for that and trying to get that, um, you know, he, he inflates himself and does some pretending, and also does some gossiping and putting other people down, things he's really embarrassed about. So he was sharing that because we've, we've shared what's real some. And that the shift for him, because he's got a meditation practice, was that when he saw that, that behavior that really, in a sense, disgusted him, you know, that you know, just felt so small-minded, um, he went under it and he said, okay, what's really driving it? And he got to the place that he realized it was coming from. He wanted to be the best and the most popular and so on because he wanted to be loved. And he could see when he looked at his childhood, very, in this case, father was, was very, again, well-known, very narcissistic. He got very rewarded when he performed well and kind of ignored when he didn't. And... Um, really had this unmet need to have a feeling that he'd be loved for who he was. So he got hooked on trying to be loved for something, for being an icon of some sort. But when he could see the suffering and the yearning in the mixed, he could say, it's not my fault. It's not my, this is happening. And then that ended up creating more space, more like opening out of the cloud. He, could, he had more sense of, you know, his heart was a little bit softer towards himself and it actually shifted the behaviors. It's not my fault is an incredibly powerful tool if you find you're completely turned on yourself. But it doesn't end there, there's more. But that's just one way to start loosening it. Now there's another way that has to do with sensing the belief that's there and sensing how real it is to you, but in some way getting that it doesn't mean it's true. 
And I'd say that the main thing people get when they leave a retreat, especially the first retreat, in some way, and I've had so many tell me this, it's saying, you know, I realize I don't have to believe my thoughts. So I'd like to give you an example of how I loosened up a core belief with this sense that uh, this phrase, real but not true, which uh, I got from Sokni Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. So the background to my belief is that my parents uh, were very uh, were social activists, very politically active, involved with civil rights and poverty and economic justice and so on. And when I was younger, you know, in college and after college, I also was quite active. But then when I got into the consciousness business, so to speak, um, I spent a lot more time in terms of working with inner life and, and on that realm and less active, but all along felt guilty because in some way my parents uh, were, you know, I kind of idolized what they were doing and felt like I should be doing it all. You know, I should be doing the inner work and also the outer work and involved with every cause and so on. So this is the, um, the kind of a background in some way always falling short, not contributing enough. And that was for, for a number of years. And I remember... Um, it start, you know, I started working with it as in many of the ways I've been talking about. But about five years ago, it, it came up again. I realized it was latent but not gone. And it, and it spiked because um, we were getting more and more involved in this community around issues of diversity. And it was such a close-to-my-heart um, area. I have many good friends that have suffered directly from a lack of meaningful inclusion in the Buddha Sanghas. And it might not appear that Buddha Sanghas are not welcoming Sanghas, but a real lack of, of sensitivity, um, especially people of color. And so this was really an alive issue for me. And I remember after one particular board meeting, and we were beginning to, to respond, and uh, the affinity Sanghas are growing, and beginning in the board to, and amongst the teachers to start really looking more deeply. And I remember after one board meeting, it hitting me that I'm a leader in this community and how essential it is that I commit more energy and leadership in this area. And the sense of deficiency that immediately came after that, knowing there's no way I could commit what I would think was enough. So I went home and I really felt this flooded sense of, of, of shame and falling short around something that m meant so much to me, that I just wasn't enough. And so I deepened my attention. I just want to give you my process because it was a very powerful one where I said, okay, here's the belief that I'm falling short. In some way I'm not a good enough person because I'm not giving myself enough. And and I remembered this, the language of real but not true. I said, okay, this feels really real. It really feels bad inside. But in some way, it's not the truth of who I am. So, that, so I wanted to keep inquiring. So I sensed, okay, how does believing this feel in my body? And when I believe that I am in some way not doing enough, there's a sense of shame, there's a kind of ache, a hollowness, a kind of pulling away from life really getting small. So I fully allowed the sense of badness, the feeling, of the felt sense in my body. 
And then I asked myself, well, what is it like to live with this? What's the effect this has when, it, when it's alive in me on my life? And I started sensing directly how that very guilt and shame actually created distance between me and myself and me and others. And it actually made it so it cut me off from the, the authentic caring. Guilt cut me off from caring. And... Um, then in, and then I asked myself, really, uh, you know, I felt the sense of I really want to undo this, this I'm bad feeling. And um, so I started saying, well, what would it be like without this not enough? What would it be like, and you can sense this question too for your life, what would it be like if you really weren't living with a sense of not enough? Or something's missing, something's wrong. And instantly I could feel in this particular thing around the issue of diversity that if I wasn't living with the not enough, I'd actually have this huge curiosity. Um, I'd be really wanting to seek to understand how is it that this has arisen so much sense of suffering and violence and separation and, and blindness. How did it happen? And I'd, and I'd want to understand and, I, and I'd have this more yearning to connect in an authentic way but I'd feel like without the pressure of not enough, a kind of creativity and interest in the process and care rather than a kind of dutiful and, and feeling crunched. The final question I asked was, who would I be if I wasn't feeling that guilt and shame? And I could immediately feel that sense of I would just be loving presence without that guilt and shame, without that second arrow of something's wrong, I would relax back into love. Now, I want to say that there wasn't a one-shot. I have to, again and again, when, when I feel that sense of I'm not doing enough, I have to again go, okay, it's real but not true, and I feel how it feels in your body. Feel it, okay? Feel it really strongly. Sense the effect of that. Okay, what would it be like if I didn't believe that? Who would I be? And again, it go from being inside that cloud of a not enough, not okay person to back to that space of awareness where the sun can shine through. Read you a, a poem, uh, Pesha Joyce Gertler. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again. And I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. And I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. So tonight we're talking about undoing that conditioning to turn on ourselves. And I wanted to read this poem, Holy, Holy, because I've come to look at these times where I find myself caught in that cloud of not okay as an amazing opportunity. Because each time that I pause and really deepen attention, it becomes a gateway back to that space of loving. Each time that I really take the time to say real but not true, or it's not my fault, and I come into my body and in some way I, you know, feel that compassion towards that, that pain and discomfort of self-aversion. 
I start melting back into loving. The key pieces are to have the intention. If you leave here or leave tonight or leave this talk with just a little more intention to make love of yourself perfect, you'll be alert for when you're caught in that cloud of self-aversion and judgment. The second step, you have to interrupt that self-talk and the judging thought and either in some way say it's not my fault or real but not true and come into the living feeling. Come in and go ahead and feel in your body how the aversion feels. Cry it. Let yourself cry with it. Offer yourself kindness for it. And offer forgiveness. Because the other side of presence with places we say no is holy, holy, holy. This is Yeats. He says, I am content to follow to its source every event in action or in thought. Measure the lot. Forgive myself the lot. When such as I cast out remorse, so great a sweetness flows into the breast. We must laugh and we must sing. We are blessed by everything. Everything we look upon is blessed. There is deep, deep freedom on the other side of that sense of not okay. And we have to pay attention. So we'll close, just take a couple of moments to do a kind of scan I like to do to loosen up the tangles. So as we we close, we're exploring really this pathway to unconditional loving. We begin with the life that's right here, sensing how we can notice what's between us and and loving presence, and just bring that holy, holy, that feeling it in our body, bringing tenderness, and discover the blessing on the other side, that sunlight of loving presence. So just in a simple way right now, you might scan and sense what's going on in your body, whatever sensations are here. Notice if there's places of tension or tightness. Notice if there's any places of chronic or acute unpleasantness. Letting yourself really, letting yourself really feel your body from the inside out. Notice if there's any resistance, any aversion to what's going on in your body right now. Just including an awareness, the life of the body. Sense if there's anything between you and unconditional acceptance, just allowing it to be as it is. Including the felt sense in the body, emotions. There's any anxiety or fear, sadness, Or maybe you feel sleepy or numb. 
whatever the state of heart-mind is right now, can you unconditionally accept this? Or is there some aversiveness, some sense of, I'm not okay because this doesn't feel okay. I shouldn't be feeling this. Something's wrong with me. Bringing it into the light of awareness. Noticing in a broader way if there's something going on in your life that has you at war with yourself. And sensing your intention to wake up out of that cloud of self-aversion, if it's there. Sensing the possibility of noticing the beliefs that are there about yourself. And saying, it's not my fault, or it's real but not true. It's not who I am. Sensing the possibility of opening with courage and great tenderness to how you're experiencing shame or self-aversion in the body. Holy, holy, offering care and forgiveness, making love of yourself perfect. From Dorothy Hunt, in this choiceless, never-ending flow of life, there's an infinite array of choices. One alone brings happiness to love what is. Closing with the prayer that we might awaken that heart of unconditional loving to embrace the life within and around us, that all beings everywhere might recognize their very essence as loving presence, and to live from that. May there be peace, healing, and freedom for all living beings everywhere. Namaste. Thank you. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit tarabrock.com and our imcw.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.